All right. Well, good morning, Doxa Church. Guys, week two of being back together in person. <laughs> Guys, it's, it's great to see you. And even for those of you who, who haven't been able to come back yet, it's, it's great to have you here tuned in via the live stream. And, and even though you aren't here with us physically, you know, it's, we're one day closer. And I, and I can't wait for, for all of our Doxa family to, to be together in this place once again, hopefully soon. But if you are new to Doxa, my name is Rob. I'm, I'm one of the pastors here, but we're going to jump right in today. And so if you haven't turned into your Bible into James chapter two, go ahead and get there. If you're still, let me just say this too. If you're, if you're still getting to know Doxa Church and the Doxa Church family, you know, our, our propensity as we, we gather as a church, this is what we do. We, we gather around the Bible, which is God's word to us. And, and what we do is we kind of just go through books of the Bible, kind of just slow and steady, kind of verse by verse. And, and this is what we're in fact doing as we take this 12-week journey through the book of James. And today, guys, we're, we're coming to one of the more um, confusing and debated texts in the entire New Testament and really throughout the history of the church, especially since Martin Luther in the Protestant Reformation in, in 1517. But we have some work to do today. All right, we, we got to dig into this and figure out what this means for us. And so let's get going. James chapter 2, verse 14. And this is what James says. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now, let me just pause and say that this section of James beginning in verse 14 is really kind of the main thesis statement of the entire book of James, that everything before chapter two, verse 14 is kind of like an arrow pointing towards it and everything after this verse is like an arrow pointing back to it. That for James, as he writes, verse 14 is kind of like the apex of the pyramid. All right, and as I considered this passage this week, you know, it, it made me think back to my senior year in college, okay? I had just become a Christian. God saved my life and, and not only brought me out of like really destructive ways of living, but brought me into the family of God. And upon this, like I had this deep desire to just share the gospel, tell everybody around me about this Jesus that, that saved my life. And honestly, this desire has, has grown over time. I mean, this is why Doxa Church was started a year and a half ago, to help people know and understand and obey Jesus. And so as a, as a new Christian, my senior year in college, I was, I was trying to share the gospel and, and talk to all of my friends about Jesus. And one of my friends, his name's Bobby, um, he was a student athlete with me at, at Bowling Green State University. We played racquetball all the time, okay? And I was trying so hard just to tell him about Jesus. And, and as a new Christian, like I didn't know how to do this well. Like I was, so like we were playing racquetball and it was like literally between every serve, I would serve and I'd be like point. And then I would turn back and be like, so you know about Jesus? And he'd be like, okay. And then I'd serve again. Like it was just really awkward. I was that guy, right? That, but anyway, I remember like at one point during the game, like I'm serving and I kept stopping the game and he was like, Rob, stop. I get it. Like, I know God, I'm a Christian like you. And I was like, oh man, okay, like, sorry man, I, I didn't know, I couldn't tell. And then we just kept playing. And about a week later, Bobby stopped over my house and asked to talk. All right, now, college guys, like, I'm not used, to, I wasn't used to like, hey, <laughs> like a guy stopping over my house, you know, can we just have like a really great connection time of talking on the couch, you know what I mean? So I was like, they were all together new for me. I was like, what is going on? Like, what happened, you know? And, and he, so he came in, we sat down and he said, hey, what you said 
last week like really bothered me. And so I looked at him, I'm like, I oh, mean, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really sorry I didn't. And he just interrupted me, he says, no, 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 you didn't say anything wrong. But what you said made me realize that something is in fact very wrong. And he went on to tell me that he basically is fake in terms of his Christianity, that he claimed to, to know God, he, he grew up in and around the church, but as he looked at his life, he realized that nothing was to show of his love for God. And the fact that I couldn't tell that he was different, that he was a Christian, it made him stop. And in his words, he, he, he viewed it as like God just like grabbed him and made him have like an introspective look at his life and said, do I actually know the God that I profess to believe? Guys, I tell you that story to say that this is what James is talking to us about today. That he's going to say to us that there are essentially two types of faith. There's counterfeit faith and there's authentic faith. And only one of them can save us. And before we get into these two types of faith, we need to touch on the key question that James asks. If you look back to verse 14, what does he ask? He says, can that faith save him? I want you to circle that, underline that in your Bible. This is a big question, a massive question for us. Because guys, we, we need to come to the realization that every single person in this world, we all need to be rescued and saved. This is like the overarching story of the Bible. It's about a rescue. And I think this is like the reality why all good movies, like the movies that we love, they have some element of a rescue theme in them. I mean, if you think about it, we, we love stories. We love movies and things with just a good element of rescue. That's why when we, we see a man stand up for his woman and rescue her from danger, we all feel something, right? You, you ladies are like, man, I need a man like that. And guys are like, yeah, let's go start a fight, right? I don't know, but you know, we, we feel something, right? That's why when we see like abused and neglected pets on commercials get rescued and adopted by good families and Sarah McLaughlin's in the background being like, in the arms of, right? Like we, we, we love that stuff, okay? That's why when we see like soldiers show up into a tyrannical country and, and liberate oppressed people, we clap and we cheer. Guys, we love a good rescue. And here is the reason for this. This is what God is all about. And since we are made in the image and the likeness of God, his heart cry for rescue is echoed within every single one of us, all of humanity. And we are all in this place where we might not even be aware of it, but guys, there's like this sentence of death hanging over every single one of us and we can't save ourselves. And we need someone to come in and do what we can't do, which is to rescue us. Guys, the Bible is a story of a rescue. This is the story of Jesus. I mean, the name Jesus literally means God is our salvation. And so, we stop and pause and ask the question, okay, like, well, what do we need saved from? What do we need rescued from? And to sum up what the Bible teaches, if you've been around doxa, you know this, but we need all of, all of creation, all people everywhere, we need saved from sin, Satan, death, and hell. And in the beginning, like, it wasn't like this. This wasn't the case, but this is exactly where all of humanity stands right now because in the beginning when God created, it was good. It was perfect. There, were no, there was no sin. It was just perfection, people in perfect union with God. 
But sin came into the world and broke that union. It separated us from God. It separated us from each other. And every single person in the world today, myself included, the godliest person that you know, is impacted and infected with sin. And we stand apart from God on our own. And in eternity past, God knew that we would sin. He knew that we would rebel and walk away from him. And so he devised a plan that would save us from the effects of our sin. And the plan was that a sinless savior would come as the sinner's savior. And Jesus, at the right moment, exited his throne in heaven. He stepped into the human story, the human problem and predicament. He lived a life that we can't live. He died a death that we should have died. And on the cross, one of the most significant moments in the history of the world, Jesus died in our place for our sin to obtain the thing that we could never achieve on our own, salvation and victory over sin to be with God forever. And guys, here's what we all need to know and be reminded of today. This salvation, please hear this doxa, this salvation is by faith alone by faith alone. But the question that James is asking here is what kind of faith, right? Because we can say faith and we can define faith in a number of different ways, but James is gonna say, like, what kind of faith? Like, how do we know what true saving faith looks like? And this is so important for us to ask because really eternity hangs on the answer to this. And so James, in our section today, he's going to answer this, and he's going to give us a correct definition of faith by giving us four illustrations, okay? And he starts off by giving us two negative illustrations of what faith is not. And he describes faith that doesn't save, a counterfeit faith. And the first is this. Look back to verse 15. Here's the first illustration. James says in verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, it does not have works, is dead. Okay, so James is, says like dead faith is faith that does nothing. And he uses the Greek word here, necron, which is, literally means a corpse. And so the people who were hearing James say this in the original audience, as he said dead faith, they were actually thinking about a dead body. This is what they were picturing in their head. And if you think about this, this is significant. Like what does a dead body do? It's not a trick question, right? Nothing, okay? Like a dead body does nothing. And James is saying like, this is what dead faith does, nothing. I've heard it said before that, that dead faith is, is all lip service and no lifestyle. And I think that sums it up well, that, that people with dead faith are people whose lips have much to say but their lives have little to show. They have belief without behavior. They espouse a creed but there is no accompanying conduct. And James illustrates this by using this example of how mere words will not change the circumstances of the needy and the poor among us. And he, as he uses this example, he's saying if, like, if someone is in need of clothes and food and someone else who walks by who has those things and even more, if they walk by and look at them in their poverty and their brokenness and their suffering and says, you know what, I hope you have a great day and I hope you stay warm and you're really full today. James says, like, the, the way that he ends verse 16 is, is how he begins verse 14 saying, what good is that? That's just what James is saying. He's like, what good is that type of faith? And the answer is easy. It's, it's clear, it's straightforward, that it's no good at all, right? Because the poor 
will not thank us for kind wishes, nor will God thank us for simply saying that we have faith. Now, I want you to remember this, okay? As we started this series, we, we started with the understanding that James is Jesus' brother. And so James would have been very familiar with the clarity of Jesus' teaching, especially in this kind of area. You know, for example, James may have been thinking of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25, where in the second half of Matthew chapter 25, he's speaking of like how the separation between the sheep and the goats, all right, that when a Palestinian farmer would go into his field, he would separate sheeps, 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 sheep. I'm not a farmer, right? Sheep, not sheep and, and goats. And he would put them in, in two separate places. And Jesus uses this illustration that everybody would know about to say that this is gonna be how it is when the Son of Man comes in glory. All right, that, Doc, so we need to know that when Jesus comes again, to sit on his throne that all nations will be gathered to him and he will separate as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. This is Matthew 25, 31, that he'll put the, the sheep on his right and he'll put the goats on his left. And what Jesus is saying in this passage is he's pointing out that those who enter into the kingdom of God, that those who enter into heaven will be those who have done certain things. This is what he says. Look, it's going to come up here on the screen. Matthew 25, 35 says this. Jesus says this. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? They're like, when did we, like, when did we see this? And when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And then Jesus, he goes on and he flips to the other side in verse 41 and he says, all the people who will be separated from me for eternity, which is just the terrible conscious reality of hell, will be those people who saw the needy and the poor and the afflicted and they saw them and did nothing about it. And hopefully you're hearing this and maybe this is probably like making you feel something, right? I mean, this is like a, an uneasy, like very strong comment that Jesus makes here, right? I mean, it's, it's hard. But James is saying faith by itself, lonely faith, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. This is what he says in verse 17. Now, because it would be very possible for us to jump to a false conclusion of the words of Jesus in Matthew 25 and on the basis of James 2.17, and a lot of people do. All right, that some people will say, okay, Rabbi, I get it, I've read Matthew 25 and I, I read what Jesus said and so apparently the way that you get to heaven is by giving clothes to people who don't have clothes and feeding people who don't have food and so on. Because this is what Jesus said in Matthew 25, right? I mean, this is, this is his words. He did in fact say this, but I want you to listen to this. Jesus also said to a man named Nicodemus in the Gospel of John chapter three that Nicodemus came to him and said, how do I get to heaven? And Jesus said, truly, I tell you that you will never see the kingdom of God, that you will never see heaven unless you are born again. So follow me on this. In other words, 
The works and deeds referenced in Matthew 25 are not the ground of entry into heaven because the ground of entry into heaven is the works of Jesus, but those deeds in Matthew 25 are evidence of the fact that a man or woman has been made new by the works of Jesus. This is what James and Jesus are saying. So very important, Doxa, look at me, like understand this, okay? Our works are not the basis of our salvation. They are the evidence of our salvation. They're not foundation, they're demonstration. And this is so incredibly important because so many people today are confused on this. Maybe even some of you here on the live stream, you're, you're confused by this. That maybe you, you think like life with God and the guarantee of eternity in heaven is based on how you live. And it's based on like the great humanitarian social justice things that you do throughout your life. Many people just have this thought like I just need to be a good person. This is what it's all about. And this is why what James is doing here is so incredibly important that he's making it clear that the presence of these deeds cannot be used to argue the presence of faith. That you can't just say I'm a good person, but hear this, Christian, the absence of these deeds may be used to argue the absence of faith. You see, we, we can't claim to have like a valid, eternally significant relationship with Jesus if we constantly choose to disregard people's needs around us. And we understand here, right? We, we're all about Jesus. We, talk, we share the gospel. I mean, the Bible is about Jesus. Every single page, every single chapter of every single book, it's about Jesus, the gospel. And we understand that the need to be right with God outweighs every single physical need out there. But the fact that we understand the priority of the gospel, a person being put into right relationship with God through faith in Jesus, this does not allow us to ignore the clear instruction of James here and the clear instruction of Jesus in Matthew 25. That we're not relieved of the clear responsibility for caring for the needy and the poor and the oppressed simply because we understand the nature of the priority of the gospel. Because, hear this guys, if you look at the history of the world, it's the priority of the gospel that gave rise to great works around the world. It's the priority of the gospel that gave rise to, to men like William Wilberforce who dealt with the, the slave trade in England. It's the priority of the gospel that, that led to so much work among orphans and widows and the establishments of hospitals throughout the world. It was the Christians who understood that God had gone through such lengths to save that it seemed absolutely ridiculous that we who were redeemed by the compassionate love of God, that we would not have the compassion and care for those around us, just as God did with us. That we need to understand, guys, that the vertical affects our horizontal. That we can't say, like, I have this great, vibrant, vertical relationship with God, and the way that we live on the horizontal doesn't line up. You can't say like, man, I love God and I hate people. You can't say I love God with all I have and then see a person with nothing and you have everything and not care and give to them. Right? The, John in, in 1 John says like, if you have that perspective, like, man, something is off. The love of God might not be in you. The vertical affects the horizontal. And here's the stark reality that James hits us with. Because you can be baptized in the church as a kid. You can grow up in church. You can sit in church every single Sunday. You can have your wedding in the church. You can have your funeral in the church. 
and you can wake up in hell. Because the church doesn't save, Jesus saves. Religion doesn't save you, Jesus saves you. Good works don't save you, Jesus saves you. But the true faith, true saving faith shows itself through you by evidence of good works and good deeds coming out of you. I've used this analogy before, like the, a fire in a fireplace, right? If there's a fire burning in the fireplace, smoke is coming out of the chimney. That fire causes smoke. Because this is what true faith does. If there's the faith of fire burning in us, the smoke that comes out of our lives will be good deeds. And so just as you would look at like a chimney and like not see any smoke coming out, you would probably assume there's probably not a fire because if there was a fire, there'd be smoke. And James is saying it's like that with faith. If there's not godly, Jesus-loving smoke, which are works coming out of your life, maybe there's not a fire lit in the fireplace. Maybe that's not real faith. Now look at verse 18. James shows us another illustration of counterfeit faith. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. And so here, James is imagining a guy talking about faith. Okay, so for a lot of people, faith is really nothing more than just kind of a, an intellectual matter. It's, it's something to be talked about, debated on, whatever. And this guy here in verse 18 basically says, you're into faith, I'm into good works. It's cool, right? Different strokes for different folks. Like you do your thing, I'm gonna do my thing, and it's all good to each his own. But James is saying that this way of thinking is really just completely contrary to the reality and the truth of God. And he hits it home and he shocks his, his readers. Look at verse 19. He says, you believe in God, great. He says, that puts you in the same arena as the demons, except that they might have a notch up on you because at least their belief leads them to actually have a physical response, that they shudder. They're afraid of the glory of God. And as James is pointing this out, guys, he's saying like many people will confess to believe in God, but this will not lead to any type of response. That there's people that will believe in God, but their belief changes nothing about their life. This is what he's saying. And I just want you to know, I, I love you guys enough that to say, like my, my job is just like simply just to say the truth. And your job is to figure out like what to do with it. And so I want you to know that just saying I believe in God is not enough to get you to heaven. Because even what James says, even the devil believes in God. Do you know that? Like Satan and demons believe in God. Satan is a great theologian. He knows more about the Bible than anybody in this room. He believes in the same God that we're talking about and singing to today. But true saving faith is, is not just acknowledging that, that God exists, but it's following in the ways, the words, and the works of Jesus. It's more than just a head knowledge. And I think what James is getting at is that many people are gonna miss out on the glory and the eternity and the joy of heaven by 18 inches. We're gonna have it in our head, but it hasn't moved to our heart where it's totally transformed us. And James is trying to save people from this. He's writing out of love. Like James has this confrontational style, 
but he's doing it out of love, just like his brother Jesus, who came to save people. James is saying, I'm about the same thing. I wanna save your life. Don't get caught up in this. Because 1 John 2, 6 says it like this, that whoever claims to walk in him, to live in him, must walk as Jesus did. That real faith is not just saying, I believe, but real saving faith starts with a belief that is evidenced by actions. All right, Martin Luther, the great reformer who had a really strong opposition to the book of James, he even said, we're saved by faith alone, but true saving faith is never alone. It shows itself that there's, there's smoke. All right, now look at verse 20. James says, that's counterfeit faith. All right, that's dead faith that won't save you. But then he turns to talk and discuss about the nature of authentic faith, and he gives us two more illustrations of this. Verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So James uses Abraham and Rahab to show us what authentic faith looks like. And if you know your Bible, when we consider these two people, their faith in God was shown by the way that they lived their life. It led them to action. You know, Abraham, God shows up to Abraham early in Genesis and said, I am God, I wanna be your God, and I wanna use you to tell the world about me. And then the, one of the big points in Abraham's story is when God tells him to go and sacrifice his son, Isaac. Remember that story? It doesn't make any sense, but God tells him to do this, and so Abraham, he obeys. He, he goes, and he's about ready to sacrifice his son Isaac. God shows up, provides a sacrifice, and says, don't do this. Ultimately points us to Jesus, but he obeyed. Rahab, likewise, Rahab the prostitute, as the Bible refers to her, six, six out of the seven times that they talk about Rahab, it's Rahab the prostitute, so kind of a bum deal if you're Rahab, but Rahab, nonetheless, was a woman of faith. She's in the lineage of Jesus in Matthew chapter one. Rahab meets God, loves God. Jewish spies are being hunted down by soldiers in a city. Rahab saves them. She acts on her faith, saves the people of God, lets them go, and God praises her for this. And the point of Abraham and Rahab is this. They obeyed and truly followed God. And here's why this is so significant, guys. It, it served to prove that they really did trust God, that their obedience demonstrated the authenticity of their faith. Because authentic faith, says James, says Jesus, is seen in our works. It's the natural cause of that relationship. It's a cause and effect thing. It's, it's fire and smoke. And James is saying that authentic saving faith is not just what we believe internally, but it's how we behave externally. And if you look back to verse 24, look what he says. He says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, if you are a Christian and you know your Bible, 
this is probably a very troubling verse for you, right? Maybe even, you know, talking to a guy and maybe even if you grew up in the Catholic faith, this can be a very unsettling thing. Like, I gotta do something? Like, I'm not just justified by Jesus? Like, what, how do we reconcile this? Because at first glance, right, we, we look at this and say, well, this is co- contradicting what the Apostle Paul said. Because I want you to look at this. It's gonna come up here on the screen. Here's what Paul said. Now, he says, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. That's what Paul says. Now, James He says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, right? And and you look at that and you'd be like, well, see? And and there's a lot of people that will come out and be like, this is another example of the Bible contradicting itself and this is why I can't trust the Bible. Because there are no contradictions. There's misunderstandings, misinterpretations. This is not a a contradiction and I I wanna show you this. And I'll give you an analogy that I think is very helpful. All right, let's just say like, you're in the doctor's office. All right, and in the doctor's office, there's, there's two examination rooms and you're kind of sitting in the waiting room, waiting your turn and the doctor walks into the first examination room and you, you, you can hear what he's saying, okay? He walks into the examination room and you hear him say, you need to start jogging. You need to run, you need to be more active, get up and start doing something. He walks out of that room, he walks into the second room and you hear him say, you need to sit down. Stop moving, stop running, you should not be active, just lay on your bed. Now, is this a contradiction? No, because they're different patients. The one patient had a weight problem and needed to lose weight and get healthy, the other guy has a broken leg. And so the one guy needs to run, the other guy needs to sit down. It's not a contradiction when you consider the patient. James and Paul have different patients, if you will, different audiences. James is writing primarily to a highly religious group of people who do nothing. They've been going to church for a long time, they've come to Jesus for salvation, they're just kinda going through the religious motions, not really following Jesus and not obeying the words of God. And so James says, do something with that. Paul, on the other hand, he has a different patient. He's he's writing primarily to non-Christians or new Christians who are really worried about being saved from sin, death, and hell. That these people are coming to Paul and they're saying, okay, like, what do I have to do? Like, how much money do I have to give? Do I need to get baptized? Like, what do I need to do in order to get right with God? And Paul just says, hey, you, you don't need, Jesus did everything. Like, on the cross, Jesus said in his last victory breath, it is finished. Like there's nothing you add to your salvation. Paul's saying just trust in him and Jesus saves you. And so when it comes to James and Paul, we have different patients with different problems and different treatments. And so hear this, Paul is primarily focused on how we become Christians. James is primarily focused on what it means to live as a Christian. This is huge, you cannot miss that. Now look back to verse 26. James says, faith apart from works is dead. Because what comes first? Faith, then works. That you don't work your way into faith, but your faith works itself out in your life. Now again, what does Paul say? And to sum up Paul's theology, Ephesians 2, is perhaps the best place to go. In Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, this is what the Apostle Paul says. For by grace you have been saved 
through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's a gift, not as a result of works so that no one can boast. So Paul says it's by grace that you were saved. Grace is just God's unmerited favor. It's God's undeserving love that you can't earn it. You don't deserve it. You can't achieve salvation on your own. You are saved by faith alone in Jesus alone by Jesus' works for you. We need to get this. This is the gospel that our church is rooted on. This is the gospel that the Bible proclaims, that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection has redeemed you from all of your sin, past, present, and future. And this is good news, right? Anybody excited about that? If not, I'm not even going to have the band come up here, all right? Because there's a reason to sing, that Jesus has done it all. This is great news. Now, the problem is, is that many people stop with Paul there. Like, many of you, you've, you've like... You've memorized Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 and say, it's by grace alone. And so I don't need to do anything. I'll just sit around and eat Cheetos and do what I want and read books until Jesus comes back and I'm not going to do it. This is the group that James is talking to. But even the apostle Paul, he doesn't stop there. Look at verse 10. He says, for it's by grace that we're saved through faith, not by works so that we can't boast. But then what does he say in verse 10? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Guys, Paul mentions good works and these are the works that James is talking about. So there's no contradiction there. They're completing each other. It's evidence of true saving faith. This is authentic faith. Godly Jesus type works that validate true faith not works that you do to make yourself a Christian, not works that you do to get God to love you, but works that show you belong to Jesus. Please don't miss this, Doxa. It's all about Jesus and his works. It's Jesus' works for you to save you. It's Jesus' works in you to sanctify you, and it's Jesus' works through you to authenticate the saving work of Jesus in you. And so here's a summary. Doctor, internal devotion to God, which is faith, produces external devotion to God, which is works. This is the whole point of James. Not just here in this passage, but remember the arrows are pointing back to this because this is the thesis. This is what James is saying. And this has very practical applications for every single one of us today. And this is how I'll end. For some of you, maybe you've, you've realized that you really don't have saving faith. You, you have dead faith, which is really no faith at all. And today is the day that you don't wallow in that, you don't walk out of here super bummed out, but today can be the day of salvation for you because you need to come to Jesus. And you just need to come to Jesus and say, nothing to you I bring, but only to the cross I cling. Because it's only Jesus and his works that can save you. You can never be good enough. You can never do enough to save yourself. And so I pray that this would be the day that you would come to Jesus and let him save you, not by your works, but by his works for you. For others of you, Maybe you've had the realization that like, your faith isn't really authentic like this. It's not really seen and being played out on the stage of, of your life. 
And maybe you've, you've trusted Jesus for salvation, but the life of Jesus is not spilling out of your life in like a real, dynamic, tangible way. That there, maybe you realize like there's no smoke and you're even thinking like, wait, wait, is, the fire, is the fire burning right now? And if that's you, let me just tell you this. Repent, Christian. Turn from that. Turn to God. And let that fatherly love that we talked about last week, just embrace you and change you. Because guys, I want you to hear this, there's literally only one way that this can change for you. Your heart needs to be recaptivated by the gospel in a way that it totally flips your life on end. This is the only way. Other than that, you're gonna walk out of here and you're gonna try really, really hard. But in a week, that's gonna wear off and you're gonna be like, oh my gosh, and you're gonna get caught up in this workspace thing where your good works somehow equates your good relationship with a changed heart that's captivated by the work of Jesus will change everything about us. And so here's what we're gonna to do to help this, guys. We're just gonna sing. All right, and we're not gonna sing just a song, we're gonna sing the gospel. And as we do this, we're gonna be reminded of how great the works of Jesus are, that he has saved us by his works alone. And this is an opportunity as we, we sing that, that your affections would be stirred, that your love of God would be stirred in such a way that, that your faith results in Jesus-loving works, living like Jesus for the sake of the world. Doxa, it's all about Jesus. And the fact that Jesus paid it all means that all to him I owe, right? This is why we sing that. That because of Jesus, we actually have a reason to sing. And I pray that as we sing to him and we reflect on him and we worship him for all that he's done for us, that this will cause our hearts to come alive, to be softened and tenderized to the gospel, and we will begin to live like Jesus who has paid it all for us. This is what it's all about. Let's pray. God, thank you. It seems fitting just to say thank you for Jesus. God, we, we love you. As I stand here as just a, a broken, sinful man, I'm overcome with thanksgiving and awe and wonder and praise because I couldn't save myself, but you stepped in and did it for me. The truth in, in Romans 5, 8, that while I was still sinning, Jesus, you died for me. So God, I just say thank you for doing the thing that I could never do on my own. Coming to you and finding redemption and salvation. And God, I pray as, as we have heard the the words of James, the words of Jesus, ultimately your words to us through the Bible, that they would not fall on deaf ears. The world does not need more Christians with dead faith, but the world needs more people who live, love, serve, and obey just like Jesus. And so God, I pray that we would be a church like that, that we would be a church that first and foremost loves you with all that we are. That we would look vertically and say, God, I love you and I worship you for what you have done. 
and that we would go out and we would live horizontally among the people around us in our city, in our nation, in our world. And we would live in love like Jesus. God, help us to be that kind of people. And that starts with us coming to you. So God, I, I pray that if there is somebody here that realizes that they have dead faith, would this be a day that they would come to you? Today would be the day of salvation for them. For all the rest of us, let us just worship you. Would you stir up an affection and a love in our hearts that we would live like you, that we would love like you, that we would worship you above anything and everything in this world. We pray to this in Jesus' name. Amen. So guys, I'm gonna invite you to stand. And we're gonna sing the truth of the gospel. And I want you, as you sing this, I want you to sing it loud so you can hear yourself. You can hear yourself say, Jesus paid it all. And let that truth sink down into your heart. All to him I owe. This is the gospel. Let's proclaim it.